Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's Nikki Nellis. You're live on Industry Night at the beautiful Line Hotel. And this week's show has a very special guest star. You probably won't hear from me from the rest of the show. David Nellis <laughs> is back rude. in studio. Yeah, first Yay! of all, the show is called Industry Night with Foodie and the no, Beast. No, no, no. But now you've taken over since it I was It was out. called right, well, Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast. Now it's called <laughs> Industry Night with well, Nikki Nellis. I was in Tibet with the Dalai Lama well, and I just... Got back. Okay, well, so. we hope you had a good trip. But I you did. are. Um, you know what I said? Oh my God, what? Hello, Dolly. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so, we're so excited to have uh, my husband back in studio with me to uh, talk about all the goings on in the DC metro area. And if you're new to listening to Industry Night, then let me give you a little background. My husband, David Nellis, myself, we have a radio show that's been on air for over 11 years now called Foodie and the Beast. It airs every Sunday, and it's live, and we feature all the goings-on in the D.C. metro area. It's actually the only true variety show featuring food, wine, luxury, and travel in the D.C. market. Lucky us, we got another show. Of course, he's not really involved anymore. But it is called Industry Night, and it's at the Line Hotel. We haven't been on the air six minutes, and I'm taking okay, hits already. stop. Um, and the beauty of this show is it gives me the chance to do a deeper dive with people that I know in and around the D.C. market, people who are doing really interesting things. So if you're traveling and you're staying here at the Line Hotel and you're listening to us on fullserviceradio.org, this is your opportunity to have a better understanding of what people are doing in and around the D.C. area. So in with us today um, is Steve Bayshore, who actually was just on Foodie and the Beast yesterday, um, and we had such an amazing and interesting conversation. He is the director of trades at Mount Vernon. I'm going to let him explain what that is. But he brought in all these fabulous whiskeys and other spirit products that they are actually producing at Mount Vernon. There's a huge whiskey festival coming up. He's going to give us all the details. Also on the show with us today, um, I had the opportunity to taste and try miscellaneous spirits a couple months ago and Dan and Meg McNeil are creating these spirits and it's sort of like this juxtaposition of the spirits from Mount Vernon some of the oldest distilleries in the country and now we have this Maryland based distillery which is one of the newest in the country's country excuse me so I'm very excited to sort of have this kind of talk Um, but Steve we really do want to talk to you and get a little bit of history here. We were talking off air and you're, you really started before you went into distilleries, you were into milling. That's right. So yeah. can we discuss that? Cause I don't, I don't think people think about milling as a career path. Well, it's interesting too, that the dovetail with distilling, everybody that visits the distillery today, 200 years ago, there was a, a mill next to it to grind the grain. So I got into historic water-powered mills uh, through a county park system here in the area, and that was about 25 years ago, and uh, really got bitten by the mill bug. So water-powered machinery. It sounds, it sounds like an odd bug. 
to get bit by. It sounds like a Supreme song, doesn't it? <laughs> by the mill. But... Okay. There was something about the sound of the mill running, the machinery being wooden, the millstones. It just is so ancient, and if it goes back to B.C. times, water power. So I fell in love with it there and learned to mill from another miller, did a traditional apprenticeship for three years. Wow. And then uh, have been in it ever since, making not just normal tours, grinding for tours, but food-grade product. And so we're real proud of the products we make in the mill. But that, of course, the last 13 years has also folded into the distilling. Well, so when you joined Mount Vernon in 2007, were you in charge of the mill or were you in charge of the distillery? The distillery was just being completed. So I took over as uh, manager of that site, but also the farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then about a year later, they rebuilt the blacksmith shop. So all of those trade shops are under me. I have a staff of about 25 people and... A number of them are highly skilled in different trades. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about what Mount Vernon is for the few people that don't know. Can you give us an overview of Mount Vernon? Yeah, Mount Vernon is Washington's home, of course, our first president. And it's a property that was in his family since the early 1700s. The original house there was small and actually built by his father and enlarged by his older brother. And Washington inherited the property in the late 1750s. And enlarged it to the home that you probably know the iconic home today. Mm-hmm. In its prime, though, it was an 8,000-acre estate and wow. over 10 miles of waterfront on the Potomac. So when you visit today, you see really a, a small version, but they're all original buildings there, along with the, the Grist Mill and Distillery. So we tell that story of Washington's home, and everybody knows him on the public stage as a president and uh, our commander-in-chief during the Revolutionary War. But what I love to teach about in my little area is, is Washington the farmer. And, and businessman. And an entrepreneurial man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so that people come and they, they know a little bit about his life on the public stage, and some know more. But many of them leave going, I never knew he farmed all this acreage or that he had a mill or he had a distillery. So, Well, let's talk about the farm a little bit because mm-hmm. was he farming for public consumption? I mean, the farm was massive. So what was, how, what was, how did that work? Well, initially, like most Virginians, he was growing tobacco. Mm. That's the crop that built Virginia. And in 1760s, Washington switched to grain. And the reason was his land was exhausted from tobacco. It really sucks nutrients out of the soil. Mm-hmm. So Which is a, only fascinating because tobacco isn't really nutritious. No. Well, back then, as, the, as you know, they, they thought it was medicinal. But as it we it just, is if you're R.J. Reynolds. Right, yeah. That's true. Yeah. And, it, and so he, he made that big change economically, which is, speaks to his forward thinking as a businessman, because to change cash crops is a big move. Mm-hmm. And then he built this merchant mill to export flour. And so he exported flour to southern Europe, to Portugal, uh, also the Caribbean, which were sugar islands, so they needed foodstuffs. And in fact, the Caribbean was the first market for American flour, huh. because they needed the Because it's closer. Food. Yeah, and they were making sugar cane. So they needed bread. They needed food. So mm-hmm. once the colonial mills had enough grain to feed the populace and they had excess inventory, they're shipping south, southeast. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so he's growing all these products. When does the distillery come into place? It's really late in life. Okay. So, so he gets through the period of the revolution, you know, mm-hmm. he becomes president. After he retires from the presidency, he comes back to Mount Vernon, and he hired a gentleman named James Anderson, who was from Inverkeething, Scotland. So mm-hmm. that's the man with the whiskey idea. It wasn't Washington's plan at all. He pitches the idea. Washington agrees because the market's good, money to be made, and they built a... Well, it's not rather- like people aren't drinking 
spirits at that time. Oh, right. They're, they're drinking tons of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, water isn't always safe. Right. So they need it. Right. And, and the nice thing about whiskey back then for the man making it is it was unaged. So it went right to market right away. But so it was got, white? So it was, it was clear. White, yeah, it was right? a white dog. He got into the whiskey business late, though. I mean, the, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, the first documented distillation in Virginia is 1619 of whiskey. Hmm. So it's not that Washington was the founder of, of whiskey. It was around, but it was mainly rye whiskey uh, and corn and whiskey. That's because, but so the rye whiskey in the Virginia, Maryland... Pennsylvania area is because it was a huge crop in the area, right? It was a cover crop. It wasn't made into bread flour. It was cheaper. Mm-hmm. A lot of the corn and other grains went to food stuff, so rye was a natural to distill. And you got to keep in mind that a, a, a still was a piece of farm equipment for most farmers. They had a still. They might have two. What Washington builds is a commercial distillery with five stills. Right. So in 1798, the first year it ran, they produced 4,500 gallons of rye whiskey. Wow. But the banner year, the big production year, was 1799, where they did 10,942 gallons of whiskey. And at that point, there's no such thing as bottling, right? They're Bo- just, it's all barrels. Yeah, all in casks. The bottling came really much later as a standard, I think, 1870. Old Forester was the first one to bottle. Mm-hmm. Although, if you're a wealthy person, glass was available. Uh, like, like this one estate in Virginia called Mount Airy, places <laughs> like that, that uh, they used to make extra brandy the local people would buy it but the landowner wanted his bottles back oh. i'll make i'll use those next year so <laughs> like trickling springs milk yeah, sounds like a milkman. Right, right. Yeah. exactly He's like, here's your quarter return your glass but in washington's case it was all cask alexandria virginia was the destination for 95 percent of it and he also made peach apple and persimmon brandy so we've hmm. dabbled in brandies as well these last few years well so let's talk about production now because your your production is trying to stay as true to the original production that Washington did. So I'm sure there's mass quantities of history there to guide you, but how do you Can wind up doing it? Can we talk about how a still works? Okay. I Certainly. have no idea. Yeah. I just know you fire and boiling. Well, there's two basic parts of making spirit. Is Number one, after it's milled, is you have to ferment and you have to distill. So fermentation for us is done in wood barrels. Mm-hmm. So we row mash by hand. We cook the grains, ferment the grains. Once you have your mash or distillers... How long does it take for them to ferment? Three to five days. We usually do a three-day fermentation. And then, you, and then you get it into the pot still. In our case, we're running copper pots. They're not a modern still, so it's this individual batch each time we run it. So How we, big... I mean, I've been there, so I've seen it in mm-hmm. process. And if you have not been out to Mount Vernon or you're thinking about a trip, obviously seeing the distillery is pretty fascinating. But how big are those pots, and, and what's the concern of, like, a fire starting? Because it's yeah. not a safe business. No, not at all. I mean, our, our pots are between 98 and 70 gallons, okay. and, um, and we were open flame. So we're, right. we're real careful with uh, high-proof spirits, and uh, we're also careful what, we, what charge we put into the still when we double. Because uh, for a couple of reasons, you don't want too high of a charge. After what does that first. mean, a charge? Well, let me back up, because you had a good question, David. How does a still work? That's the um, only kind I've got. Um, basically, that mash you have in there, which is alcohol and water and grain mixture, you heat with a fire source, or if in a modern way, they'll heat it in, in today. And the alcohol bo- boils off at a lower temperature than the water. So about 173 Fahrenheit, alcohol turns to vapor, floats to the head of the still, travels down a line arm. And we've all seen, like the moonshiners show, these spiral right. coils mm-hmm. that are there. It's a condenser. So that alcohol goes into gas form, and we run cool water through that barrel that has the condenser in it, and that takes it back to liquid, which is your whiskey. 
But everything needs to be double distilled. So the first pass they call low wine. And then when you're going to double that, you don't want too strong of a proof to go into the still the second time because of the flash point of alcohol. Also, you can't come off the back of the still at above 160 proof because that's not whiskey today. That's light whiskey. So Mm. if you go too far, you're making vodka, 190. So in Washington's day, he didn't have to worry about all that. Yeah, the rules were very different. All he had to do was pay the tax, which he helped establish as president, Mm -hmm. which uh, we could talk about at some point. But... But for our methods, we do it that way because it's Mount Vernon. We want to do it the old way. We do, at the end of our process, filter and bottle the whiskey, which because we're a market, we're trying to reach the broader market. But up to that point, it's all 18th century style. Well, when you were doing, when, when you first ran the distillery, as you were creating your first couple of products, were, were there recipes? Was there, or was it all just sort of what everybody did so there was nothing to really follow? Well, we have the ledgers from Washington's time, but they didn't write down everything. You know, when Mm -hmm. people are doing a process, it's probably that way. You know food so well with old recipes. They leave some things out. Right. They they assume you know. They don't put salt and pepper because you should know to put salt and pepper in there. Right. Seasoning, stuff of that nature. So our archaeological team and research staff looked through those ledgers. They didn't find a mash bill or recipe, but what they saw was a notation when grain went from the mill to the distillery. Okay. And they broke the numbers out and got a ratio of about 60% rye, 35% corn, 5% malted barley. And we've tweaked that a little bit, but that's our basic mash bill. Okay. And is that, for people who are sort of interested about whiskey, how does it change as it goes down south? Do you know what I mean? Like when we get, talk about like what they're doing in Kentucky, or how, do, how does the product change? Well, there's always going to be rye whiskey around in the 18th and 19th century, but what changes in the early 19th, around 1818, 1821, is bourbon is born. Mm -hmm. And there's a few stories about how that name comes about. Um, Michael Veach, who's a bourbon historian in Kentucky, he's quite knowledgeable, and most people will say, well, they made this whiskey in Bourbon County, Kentucky. It floats down the Mississippi. While it's traveling down there, it takes on some color and different flavor because maybe they used an old barrel that had had fish in it, and they had to burn that out. Right. Problem with that? You theory, mean the char? The char. Uh-huh. The problem with that story is if you've had fish in a barrel, no matter what you burn out, it's going to smell like, like fish. fish. <laughs> so Michael has an interesting theory because he found some information about uh, people wanting the whiskey that was drunk down on Bourbon Street. And so that's another way to look at the geographical origin. It's one of those historical names we'll never know. But bourbon becomes that whiskey that we're so well known for. And that really starts about 1820. And what's the difference in... Rye and bourbon. Rye and bourbon. Because there's not that much rye in bourbon, right? Well, there can be. Uh, Okay. So bourbon is by law 51% corn or greater. Mm -hmm. And it'll have a secondary flavoring grain, which will often be rye. But if you've ever had Maker's Mark, which most people have, that's a weeded bourbon, so that secondary grain is wheat. Mm. And we made bourbon last fall for the first time at Mount Vernon. And the interesting thing there is we always try to hang a hook of history on it. So I found a document in the farm report where the first distillations, they didn't have enough rye. Mm. And the Scottish farm manager, James Anderson, tells Washington, I'm using wheat tailings and corn from the mill. So we made a weeded bourbon with 70% white corn from Kentucky. 20% wheat from Virginia and 10% malt. And the interesting part of that is when we eventually, we're going to age that a while. Mm -hmm. When we sell that, we can tell the story of Kentucky was once part of Virginia. Washington owned land in Kentucky. Don't tell the people in Kentucky that. Right. That's fascinating. I made that mistake once in Kentucky as a Virginian. (laughs) What about Cooper's? 
Well, there were Coopers right on site there mm-hmm. uh, that Washington Is had. that something that's been started up again at Mount Vernon? No, we have a man that comes in from Williamsburg who was there for years who does demonstrations, but we haven't gotten that skill just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we buy our barrels from Kentucky or Missouri, when we age our whiskey. And do you char them as well or no? Is yeah. that strictly? So where did the charring come from for your production? Well, we buy modern barrels. That you we buy do, modern barrels. And we, okay. Depending on the whiskey, we select a certain cooperage. Uh, okay. In Washington's day, though, keep in mind, they were aware of aged spirit. They were. Yeah. Well, I mean, they aged wine. And brandies. Sure. So I've found records in different research I've done of 15-year-old brandy coming out of the Caribbean. And so it just was the wealthier class could afford that. Sure. The common market, the common man drank the unaged whiskey. But there's a great record one time Washington got a, a, a cask of 28-year-old rum as a gift from mm-hmm. someone and you should see the letter of thank you he wrote because he knew the value of that gift fascinating yeah but everything else here this side of the atlantic was unaged so my question is is you brought in a bunch of bottles today what what are what are all the SKUs that you have and are people able to buy them yeah these are all sold at mount vernon with the exception of the single malt whiskey which i'll talk about in a minute that okay. was a special but we sell an unaged rye which is true to history and we're also the official state spirit of Virginia, mm-hmm. which was a, a bill passed a couple years ago by Governor McAuliffe. And uh, so that's nice to have on our label. So that's as true to history as you can get. It's 86 proof. It's the original mash bill. Mm-hmm. Never hit a barrel. Then we have a two-year-old rye, which is still pretty young. But rye does better young. It can be okay young. Uh, so this has been in oak cast for two years. And then we have a four-year-old rye, which is our premium product, which is this batch here is a five-barrel small batch. It's the best we produce to date. Um, the single ball was an well, interesting... Can I interrupt? Yeah. Sorry. These are all very wry comments, but uh, <laughs> what, what, for the uninitiated, what are the differences? I mean, what are you tasting? Well, the years. In, and no, well, I, I, I figured that part out, but it's, okay. what are the differences in the, you know, the taste profiles? Well, with an unaged rye, you're getting no benefit of oak. You're getting all the grain. So rye is spicy anyway, if mm-hmm. you take an aged rye. So this is really spicy up front, peppery. It's got a, a smoother finish than one would anticipate because of the high corn component in it. So it's, it's quite a nice, long, sm- sweet finish. Um, but a lot of people look at unaged rye and get scared because it's unaged products. So well, we have, not only that, people think... Um, they scared think, of what? They think grain alcohol. Going blind? Which yeah. is what it is, but not in that capacity, right? Well, they think moonshine right. is what they think. But the difference is, you know, moonshiner is not going to buy a lot of grain. Moonshiner is going to pour sugar in a tank and flavor it with grain or fruits. So we kind of dispel that it's not moonshine, but it's a, it's a whiskey made mm-hmm. of olive grain, and it's quite high quality. In fact, this unaged rye won a silver medal in 2018 at the American Craft Spirits Awards. So we were proud of that. It's our best unaged. Cool. And then the two-year-old, you're still going to get that pepper allspice, but now the oak starts to come into it. So uh, it's going to be a little bit of that oak on the back end. Uh, it's going to round the edges off the rye taste, is what I like to say. I feel like it's we still, should be tasting um, these while we're talking about them. Well, I've them, got a couple okay, of them open Great. Here. Well, yeah. then I think we should try some yeah. while you're talking. Um, so let's talk about the special one that yeah. you guys created. Yeah, that was a neat story because obviously at Mount Vernon, we're always trying to harken back to the history. And in uh, 2012, it was the 100th anniversary of the Scotch Whiskey Association. Mm-hmm. So they came to us and said, we'd like to make whiskey with you guys. And, and they sent over uh, John Campbell from Lafroig, uh, Andy Cant, who was at Cardew, who made all the Johnny Walker for years, and uh, uh, Bill Lumsden from Glenn Morangy, who's a real character. And we I feel like in the whiskey world, 
There are a lot of characters. It's full of characters. Yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and even if you're not a character, a couple of shots and you are. Exactly. But uh, Bill, Bill's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But they came over and we, they shipped over 2,500 pounds of Scottish malt. And that's where I pulled rank that year as a miller. I ground all that myself in the mill. Because cool. I thought it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Some of it was peated, but most of it was not. And then we fermented that. And those gentlemen made this whiskey with us. Just There are only 60 bottles of this that exist. So is your mill water-powered? Yeah, it's all water-powered. So that moves the wheel and the whole yeah. thing? That's yeah, 16-foot wooden wheel. So they, when they came, that was kind of a funny story because we did the fermentation here ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then they flew over. And I have a photograph of those three men around the fermenter. And I'm thinking, if we mess the fermentation up, it's all over. Right. And so they tasted of it, and they said, it's right where it should be. And we're like, breathe a sigh of relief. Right. And then we ran the stills with them for two or three days. Um, and so the experience for them, I didn't realize how much it meant to them, because John's been over again for a Burns night dinner we had in Mount mm-hmm. Vernon. And during his talk at the end of the night, he said, it was one of the most seminal position or experiences for me as a distiller to be at Mount Vernon and do it the old way, like his ancestors. I bet. And so, and Bill told me once that he still has the shoes by his fireplace that he spilt mash on at Mount Vernon. Because we were just thinking, we're just novices. Who are these? These guys treated us very well. That's amazing. And so that's a very special memory. But that's what I often say about Mount Vernon. It brings people together. Well, you're actually bringing together people with your whiskey festival, which is the first time ever. That's right. So why do a whiskey festival? Why? I mean, you guys do a wine festival. That was a fabulous segue. Well segued. Um, you do two wine festivals a year, right. which are very popular, always sell out. Why, why venture into an, yet another festival? Well, I think we'd reached the point where we'd never done a whiskey-type event like this. We'd done private fundraisers and sure. private things, and we just thought, you know, the time has come. Our, our whiskey is more recognized in the mm-hmm. market, and so we just believed it was time to do one. So we're having this November 9th, mm-hmm. and we'll have a, a VIP portion at the distillery from 5 to 6.30, and then the main event Is on that the estate. sold out already? Did I see? The VIP just sold, sold out. out, right? Maybe yeah. last night after talking with you. After our show, you. probably. Yeah, yeah. so. But, You're uh, welcome. <laughs> thank you so much. Sure. Um, but it's going to be a lot of fun because we're bringing together people that have helped us in the distillery over the years. So John Campbell of Lafroy will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa Wicker will be there, who's our key consultant now. She runs Widow Jane in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, and then we have uh, a number of others like Ted Huber out of Indiana. Uh, Becky uh, Harris, who you right, know, Catoctin Creek. Creek. So it's kind of two things in one for the public, a lot of fun, but also for us bringing these people together. Well, the to other thing that's thanks. interesting is you have, and we'll be finding out more about that shortly, but you have women distillers. I mean, it was traditionally a guy's thing. And, well, uh, it was traditionally told that it was a guy's thing. There were plenty of women distillers. They just weren't getting the well, attention probably, for it. No, but I'm, no, but, well, the interesting I mean, thing is it really... Uh, it, it goes back a long way as a woman's thing because this was part of housewife and cookery. Right. And if you look at these books from the 1400s, distillation happened. With the men women. were in the fields doing the farm. The women were in there cooking dinner and, and making the um, yeah. making and so, the mash. So when it becomes an industrial endeavor is when the guys men take into, over. The boys right. took over. But the movement of women in distilling, as you all know, is really big. And so Working with Lisa has been fantastic because she was a winemaker 10 years before she became a distiller. So she knew about how to ferment in wood. Mm-hmm. And so she came out a few years ago and said, you know, I could tell in a day her body language. She said, you need to change a couple of things. So she helped us get better at it. And really, she's mostly responsible for us winning that medal because it's her mash bill that we use now, her, her protocol. And then Becky is fantastic who you've yeah, worked with. Is. And uh, so I think the point is there's talented people 
in this industry of mm -hmm. all types. And the craft industry proves this sort of entrepreneurial spirit that's out there. Well, on that note, I'm going to let you pour so we can all taste. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into Dan and Meg. And then yeah. at the end, I'll let you give a shout out to Mount Vernon again and tell people yeah. where they can find the information. So total other side of the coin, right? Here we are, very deep in history. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, Meg, Meg is, was with Deloitte. I guess you're still there. But she probably was sitting at her desk one day and said, I need a stiff drink. Is that <laughs> pretty much what happened? Something like that. So, uh, how, so you guys just started your distillery two years ago. A little over two years. We'll celebrate three in December. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So let's start from the beginning. Distilling, Maryland, it was a thriving industry forever and a day, and then not. How did you guys decide that this was something you wanted to get started in? So I, I you know, I was working in politics. I was really loving it and hating it at the same time because I wanted something physical and real that I could, you know, show somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, my neighbor was kind of the inspiration for that. Where I grew up in New Jersey, he was an upholster, but he could take a raw piece of wood and turn it into a gorgeous piece of furniture. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. That's not for me, but I've always had this, you know, really deep appreciation of rye whiskey and rum so why don't why don't i you know try making something like that on my own so uh looking towards where we want to do this meg was um grew up in gaithersburg and uh, one of my friends in the political scene had moved to maryland and uh he and his wife had bought their their family farm mm -hmm. and uh they agreed to grow grains for us so knowing that we had a, a ready source for rye grain meant that i could make rye whiskey so but were you, how did you educate yourself? How did you get, I mean, it's not like you just, I mean, yes, people did just have stills and just did it on their own. But yeah. how did you know that you wanted to make a product for production? I mean, you don't there know. is your That's passion the you and then there's your know. passion that becomes your profession. Yeah. It doesn't always work that way. Right. And it, it kind of worked out. It took about two, two and a half years of, you know, <laughs> studying, going out and talking to about 50, 60 other distilleries across the country just mm -hmm. to see is this a good business move? Is this smart? Is this fun? You know, a well, lot how of hard is it? Did you have epic fails or did yeah. you? Yeah, of course. You know, th there was a decent number of things that went wrong. Um, and everybody's top advice was it's going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. Sure. So we budgeted that and then. And then added and then, another. Yeah, and then, but then we still were off by a factor of two. You know, it's it doesn't matter. So, so. what was your initial it's like goal? Like having children. Yeah. What was your uh, what was the initial goal? Like, did you just have one product in mind, multiple products in mind? Did you want to build a big distillery? Like, what was your business plan? How it, did you plan it out? Yeah. How did we plan that out? <laughs> sure. So, I think the commitment to rye was something from the beginning. Um, as we've just heard, it's, it's, so, mm. it's so interesting to hear more about the regional history um, with Mount Vernon, too. But rye has this presence in the region, so we knew that was um, a category when we wanted to play in. Um, and then rum as well. I mean, I have a history with rum as a um, Peace Corps volunteer. So I lived in Grenada for two years, got my first rum education there. Um, and then... Do you want to tell us it? about that? Yes, right? How did that go? <laughs> and when um, I woke up on the beach... Right. <laughs> not, not a ton of drinking in my work there, but um, we had actually a... Rivers Antoine is a, a distillery that's still operated without any electricity. Um, so, you know, similar to what we were just hearing, all, you know, the open flame fires. They also use donkeys to power um, some of the, like... Uh, the 
other motors that are part of the production process that they use, and I'll mm-hmm. open our fermentations there as well. So um, really harsh product, <laughs> but mm-hmm. kind of cool to see in action. Um, so, you know, I think for me, the idea of getting to, you know, be exposed to different, you know, different types of brands there was something early on. But I never thought at that point, maybe how long ago was that, 15 years ago, that I'd be um, here. sitting here talking about right. rum as our, as our business. Um, but yeah, as you asked about, where did we start? So we started with rye and the rum. Um, our first product was a, a white rum. Um, and then we expanded into a, a golden rum uh, that's an oak infusion. Okay, wait, um, I'm going to stop you. We yeah. have to take a commercial break. But when we come back, let's talk about rum and what it was about it and what you do to make it yours. This is David and Nikki Nellis. We're live on Industry Night at the Lion Hotel. We're getting a total spirit education here in studio from the old to the new. We'll be back in just a sec. We're back on Industry Night with David and Nikki Nellis. You know, Nick, when I say to you, I only have rise for you, I'm referring to whiskey. Mm-hmm. Are you going to respond? No. Okay. She's dry. It's exhausting. She is dry. So we're talking to Dan and Meg McNeil. And uh, what, why don't you talk about what you poured here? Because there's a whole... No, no, no. That's no? not where we left off. Where did we leave off? We left off on rum, on which rum. was your first product. Yes. And why did you guys go with rum as your first product? So... Um, well, we knew we wanted to make a rum, and mm-hmm. we hit some of those learning curves uh, that were previously discussed with so the rye. So for, for people who have no idea, yeah, total rum 101. Rum, What's in rum? Absolutely. What isn't in there? Sugar. Just sugar. Yeah. And what's kind of crazy is that if you look at the regulations for what describes whiskey, it's pages and pages long. Okay. Right? There's a lot of detail, and we heard about how it has to be distilled and how it has to be aged and all that. When it comes to the description of rum... Made from a sugar input, sugar cane based input, and has the characteristics of rum. So then that's it. So rum is defined by being. So does that mean like, like you could use sugar cane, sugar beets, like you could use any yeah. product that like creates sugar? But not sugar beets. 
molasses. Yeah, it has to be it has to be something sugarcane based. So molasses, demerara, you know, white, okay. anything anything that comes from the sugarcane or a derivative. So of what did the two of you decide you wanted to use to make your rum? So I decided that um, I wanted to use something that was going to be full bodied, whether it was in the white version or golden version or our barrel aged version. So I used blackstrap molasses. But wait, as my you primary. knew from the beginning you were going to offer three kinds. No. Okay. I knew I was going to offer two kinds. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> The third was a bit of a, a, a you know, a, a happy accident, but um, I definitely wanted my white rum to have a lot of flavor, be full bodied, and, mm-hmm. and still stand up. You know, something you could just sit there, sip, ice cube, squeeze a lime. Okay. And I think that's what our risky rum really came off as. The second iteration that I, I knew I was going to do was our barrel aged rum, our poppy's finest rum. Mm-hmm. And that is, I wanted to, again, have that full bodied. So I used blackstrap molasses and dark brown sugar, and then uh, double distilled. And this goes into the barrel at uh, 60% or 120 proof. Sits in a 30-gallon new white American oak barrel with a char level 3 for 600 days. So not quite two years yet, uh, but this has won double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition this year. Thank you. um, So, but let me ask you a question. When you're launching a distillery, if your product has to be aged, Mm -hmm. you're not putting product in market. Well, that's why so we how did the, you do it? That's why we had the white rum. Okay. Yeah, the risky as a way rum to was start. a way to start okay. with that, that new product, unaged, and go right right into it. Our dew point rum was our golden rum. We did kind Wait, of a Where did you a, a just pour around. for us? This was this the, poppies. the poppies. The barrel aged The barrel aged. Okay. Yeah. So the dew point was something that we did where... You know, we wanted to have something, you, know, you, you take a white product out to, to market and everybody says, oh, well, do you have anything that's dark? Because I only drink dark spirits. Well, I mean. It's, a, it's such a silly thing to say. It's pretty silly. Yeah. But, you know, you can't tell everybody they're silly or mm-hmm. they'll never buy your product. So right. we, we took. Um, we <laughs> we'll took, just tell them here. Yeah, we'll just that's tell them here. That's silly. Why you guys are just right. so silly. Failure is a uh, distillery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we took our product. We again went down to 60% alcohol. And we left it in a glass carboy with a charred oak spiral. If you've ever seen them. I have no idea what you just yeah. said. It sounds like English, but I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. It's basically a, a piece of oak cut mm-hmm. into a spiral shape, just like a, a corkscrew, right? Okay. And that gives it more surface area. Sure. So then they char it just like the inside of a barrel. Mm-hmm. And then we leave it in a glass carboy with the spirit and Wait, steep what it is almost like tea. Glass a, car- a glass car-pied. carboy is just a, a, it's a big glass vessel. Okay. Yeah. So... You could say that too. Yeah. No, I'm we'll joking. Do, yeah. <laughs> no, he wants you to feel small. I know. So we leave it in that glass vessel okay. <laughs> for um, two months, and it gave it this beautiful golden appearance. It gave it this nice color, and it gave it a completely different flavor profile too. Now, was that an experiment, or was that something somebody told you to do? It was an experiment. Did it blow your minds when it tasted good? No, because we knew what was going in was good. But what came out was just so different than what I was expecting that that kind of blew my mind. And were you making this as something for bartenders to use, for people to sip on? What was your thought process? For that one, I definitely thought it was something more that the bartenders were going to use. Okay. A golden rum that you know you mix as a Mai Tai or something like that. Okay, so like tiki drinks, yep. things of that Absolutely. nature. Okay, so then when you... So we have rums. Mm-hmm. We started there. Yeah. When do we start with your whiskey the whiskey was you know kind of going into that planning and and being twice as far behind right so we told our friends okay we want you to plant the grain for us 
but that still takes a full season. And if you tell them in the spring, they're still not going to plant it till the winter. Of course. And then it has to come out in July and be harvested and then cleaned and then go to the mill. And we didn't really have any grain until you know about the that you know um, late winter of, of 2017. So we didn't really have our, our rye product coming out until then. So um, that's why we ended up with rye first and whiskey second. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Rum, rum first. first. Yeah. Yes. So when you were putting together your rye, what were you looking for? What were you? I mean, yeah. There are a lot of you know products on the market. What was it that you were looking to do? I was looking to make a rye that was 100% unmalted rye grain. Okay. And give it that, like Steve was saying, very full-bodied. One like I wanted you to just taste rye. I didn't want any corn. I didn't want barley. I didn't want anything else introduced to it but still be so smooth and sippable. So that's why we gave it that double distillation. So and for else. people who don't know, malt is an additive, right? So Malt is a process. Right, so, so what is the process for malting? Basically taking that, that grain and making it grow and then killing that growth off with heat. Is it like, a, is it like sprouting it? Yes. Okay. So that's what malted... So when people say malt liquor, what is that? What is malt? Malt Anybody know what malt liquor is? I have yet to really fully that, understand. Like, I'm, I'm not in beer, so I, I get I get to take a pass on this. But, but no, be, but it is an alcohol. Wouldn't it be the same thing, letting the hops grow a little and then killing that off? It's the, it's the barley. With whiskey that they let grow. So yeah. you let it sprout, yep. then they dry it on a malt floor and then bake it by some manner. So in Scotland, with the smoky scotches, that's peat that's used to fire oh, right, as to opposed to wood. So if you like a Laphroaig or something, it's very sure. peaty. but. But malt is not always used, even in the old days. So right. it's neat that you did what you did with that decision. Yeah. So you started with the rye. Mm-hmm. It's 100%. 100. Yeah. And is there a lot of that in the market? You're seeing a lot more. You're, you know, like, you're, you know, Scott and Becky are, are doing 100%. Sure. Um, Kentucky and Creek. I think... Um, Whistlepig is. Yeah, Whistlepig mm-hmm. has one. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one that's around us. I mean, even our friends at uh, Baltimore Spirits Company have... 100% rye, but 5% of theirs is a, a malted rye. So mm-hmm. to have something that's 100% unmalted is very... And what's so the what aging process? Yeah, what's the aging process? Like, what do you do to get the desired effect from your rye? So we're using different format or different sized barrels. So mm-hmm. um, the typical barrel size is 53 to 59 gallons. Um, that's what you normally see as cask sizing. We're using barrel sizes from 5, 10, 15 and 30 gallon barrels and is that strictly so you can get the flavors of the barrels more as opposed you know more quickly yeah so basically a five gallon barrel will allow us to bring that product out of the barrel within about six or seven months Mm -hmm. and that will have a similar color flavor profile as a you know 53 gallon barrel at two years so well that sort of leads me to my next question when you decide on bottling What's your production level? I mean, you're, you have, I mean, I'm looking at the amount of bottles you have in front of us, so you have quite an offering, but does that allow you to have enough to sell? Yeah, I mean, we can sell it. It's just whether or not we keep everybody fully stocked at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, our rise, especially, you know, what do we call it? allocated at this point. Okay. We can't get everybody that's ordering our rye a full case or even, you know, more than two bottles at a time. So we're, you know, we're, we're trying Which is a to good problem to have. Yeah. Well, it so isn't, is it, it isn't. With yeah. limited production, people, if people, if they have gaps, they have an issue. Well, so when you were building your distillery, yeah. what did that look like for you? Did you know, like, was there going to be a tasting room? Was there going to be a way to engage with people? 
Were you going to have to wear a barrel yourself? You know. <laughs> so I helped with the business plan as we were getting started, and I think we operated under an assumption of what is the scale that we can do this at, mm -hmm. that we are bootstrapping it and trying to minimize the investment right. and, and break even, right? Sure. So really just prove the concept, which for anyone listening is a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> it was, yes, you know smart and cautious. There's no right way to do it though, <laughs> no right way, honestly. Absolutely. But I think, um, you know, there's a lot of aspects of our production process that are just, you know, really, really labor intensive and inefficient because we were starting with that goal of just, can we make something good? Mm -hmm. um, and so the space that we have, we wanted to be um, on a main street and kind of contribute to economic development of a town. So we chose our location that way. We do have a tasting room. It's just 400 square feet. And, and that's in Mount Airy. In Mount Airy, yep. Maryland. Yep. In Mount Airy, Maryland, Carroll County. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes us the first distillery in Carroll County since Prohibition, but that's not much of a historic claim <laughs> given that's the company. Good I think it is a good it claim. It actually is a huge claim when you consider yeah. how rural it is. It's surprising that yeah. nobody jumped on it before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, we have the tasting room. We, we love when folks come in and see us. I mean, the core for us is really wholesale. But the distillery is not where the tasting room it is. It is. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's all one location. It's all one location. Okay. Yeah, it's all right on Main Street. So we'll have people, you know, eating dinner at the brick oven pizza place upstairs, come on down afterwards, and they're just surprised to, to look around and to see everything's being made right there. So the bags of grain are coming in, uh, things are being mashed, fermented, distilled, barreled and bottled right there. Wow. So when you put this together, now that you're at this point, yeah. so how many products are you producing? So we have six that we um, focus on for wholesale, mm -hmm. an additional four that we have just in the tasting room. Okay. And our whole production team is Dan. Mm -hmm. um, and no, he doesn't really sleep. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so, That's a lot. Yep, it has been, especially with the, um, the, the gin, um, which we're uh, pouring a cocktail here that features that gin. This has been our top seller um, in DC and it is the most labor intensive to make. Why? Um, because it's actually the same base as our unaged rum, our risky rum that we had, mm -hmm. um, or we haven't sampled that one, but the risky rum that you can see there. We've then taken that and distilled it um, twice to make the risky, a third time to produce a vodka, and then a fourth time with the botanicals to make the gin. But is gin normally made from the same distilling process as Rum? The process would be the Not same. Not the process, but the, but the ingredients. No. Right, sorry. No. We so what is gin normally made with? So gin is basically a flavored vodka. Right. So Which can be... Made from anything. Made from anything, mm -hmm. right? Potatoes, grain, whatever. Yep. So usually folks will go with what's the, the cheapest inputs, right? Because a vodka is... You're aiming for flavorless and um, colorless. Mm -hmm. And But we went with, let's try it out with what we had on hand. Okay. Um, so it makes us a tiny bit more efficient because we've got one mash, blackstrap molasses, dark brown sugar, they can have five different futures. And the products are so different, sure. um, but in different categories and everything else. And so the one mash is producing three rums. Three rums. A vodka. Yep. And a gin. Correct. Why do vodka? Vodka was, I mean, in some ways it's a, you need a vodka to make a gin. Okay. Right? So it's kind of a step along the way. Mm -hmm. um, we also know a lot of people, that's a, a favorite category. So in the tasting room, it's fun to, to share with folks and they'll bring it home to their to their home bar. But six to bring out into the world is already a lot. So that one um, stays home. Right. <laughs> so then gin, was gin on the horizon to begin with? Or it just, everything just sort of followed 
No, oh, Jin was not like on the horizon. Okay. I made a special request for Jin because it's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, um, Dan and I have been together for over 10 years, but just got married last year. I wanted Jin at our wedding and thought it would be... Really not. wrong to serve somebody else's gin, right? Yes. A little bit. I mean, we have all these other amazing spirits. Can't, right. can't you just whip up a little gin? That would be so great. Uh, I want to go back a little because were you guys rye and gin and vodka, uh-huh. you know, aficionados? Did you really know about all the taste profiles? And did you, you know, when you say, you know, we wanted to achieve this, we wanted to get that. Yeah. Because you, you make it sound like you guys sort of fell into distilling because Dan wanted to do something, you know, that he made. But um, that's Dan's a piece always, of- yeah, he's always been that friend who can make a great recommendation, who knows, um, you know, who can hear the things that you might like and notice and then suggest something else, can pick out, you know, notes in a way that's... He's know, a male Nicky. <laughs> exactly. So. But I mean, is that because, because I'm thinking of, you know... Brown spirits are so big. Forget mm-hmm. the you know the vodka and the gin for the moment. Oh, thank you. And they're especially big with millennials. Um, and I have a couple of millennials who work for me. One of them is a he's in a beer club I and mean, all that. To be fair, but they're asked, millennials. I know, no, no. But what, what okay. I'm saying is, it's almost like there's some people now that are behind the curve. Mm. So how do people, aside from mm-hmm. just going and drinking until they figure out something, how do people? Yeah. Do they can they come to you to your tasting room and get an education? Too? Oh, we love it. And, you know, as Dan mentioned, I mean, he visited um, between 50 and 60 distilleries, and people were so generous in answering our questions and helping us um, get smart as we were getting rocking and rolling. We love showing people around, answering questions, and having people come see us. Um, so when I people think, come see you yeah. and they go for a tasting tour, mm-hmm. what, like, how, what's the investment? How long does that take? What is that like? Yeah, so um, they, the, the tour is about 20 minutes, maybe another 20 minutes or so a little longer for the depends if Dan's doing the tour then you get all the nerdy details uh-huh. watch out right? but I think people um, love that yeah. I, they come for that They're, most people who are doing a distilling tour aren't there for like the you know the bare basics they want the deep dive mm-hmm. you get those are the those are the diehards that's yeah. what they want yeah no we love we love hosting the the diehards and the are you really making curious. this right here? Curious, yeah, curious. exactly. Right. Um, so we ask for, we actually offer our tours and our tastings for free, and we ask our customers for a five dollar donation. We pass hundred percent of that along to nonprofit partners. That's amazing. Um, so lets us give back even from day one, um, while we work on being wildly profitable. Right. Well, it's interesting because most distilleries do not do free tours, mm-hmm. especially with a tasting attached to it, because it is a commitment of, for, of staff to participate. I think I have your ad campaign. Okay. <laughs> Are you rye curious? Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank there you, you go. very much. You can pay him later. Thank right. you so much. Exactly. You can pay him later. All right. So you made two cocktails. What did you make? I did. So the first one I gave you was our bee's knees. So that okay. is uh, our gregarious gin. That um, is perfect. Thank you. And it's good. It really is. And then I, I, I made the uh, the honey syrup uh, and fresh lime, uh, fr- fresh lemon juice uh, mm-hmm. today, so then shaken over ice. Beautiful. Yeah. So when you were making your gin, because we, we scratched the surface with it, when we talk about botanicals, yeah. what was the flavor that you were looking for? Because I was looking there's for such citrus. a Okay, because, you know, you have like English style gin. Yeah. Like there's all these different style of gins that evoke different flavors. Sure. Which well, what's the, the one is, wait, what's the one that you like? I I I mean I do like a London dry, and eventually okay. I'll probably make something that's more London dry. 
This was for Meg. Right. So I made her something that was more like what I knew she would like. So sure. it was a more citrus forward, uh, you know, contemporary American style gin. So mm-hmm. I knew I had to be very heavy on on the lemon peel, orange peel, grapefruit peel. But I wanted to have something very different, and that's why I added the pink peppercorn in there to mm-hmm. give it that little bit of... And it, you can really taste it. that yep. just on the back. Just on the back, mm-hmm. exactly. Yep. So that's that was what I was going for, and that's why I wanted it to be, you know, hers. Well, when you get a gin that's very juniper heavy, too, it takes over everything. You can't really right. do much with it. This is perfect. Well, okay, second drink? Second drink well. is a Poppy's Old Fashioned, so our, our barrel-aged rum... Uh, mixed with um, our uh, our friends over at uh, Pratt Standard, Tori's uh, Rich mm-hmm. Simple Syrup, and then um, uh, it was the DC Embitterments, uh, Orange Bitters, and their Aromatic Bitters. Local, local, local. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's delicious. Um, so what haven't we talked about? I feel like we got through most of your spirits. We talk, did we talk about the bourbon? bourbon? We haven't hit bourbon. Okay, so. which I think is perfect because that's sort of where we ended earlier with Steve. Yeah. So you guys decided, here you are, all rye. Yes. And you go for these whiskeys and then... You take the jump for bourbon. Why? So, I mean, you just get so many people that come up and say, oh, I, I don't drink anything but bourbon. And you're like, well... But do they not know? They don't know. Like, but that's okay. and bourbon? It's okay. It's, okay. You know, we're, we're here... Secret is yeah, no, yeah, silly. Yeah, they're <laughs> silly. Right. And we want people to live and drink by their own rules. So if they want to drink our bourbon, we 100% applaud that initiative. So our bourbon is different in of itself because it is 51% corn and 49% rye. As we talk about bourbon, the mash bill of a bourbon has to be at least 51%, but most of what you see in Kentucky is much higher corn content. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do 49% rye to give it a really different back note. You're going to get the sweetness up front, but then you're getting a lot of drying uh, and black pepper finish on the back end. So mm-hmm. it's a very different bourbon. And we want it to be different than what you're going to go out and see on the liquor store shelves or anything else. And what about when it comes to aging it? What's what's your process there? It's the same basic idea with the bourbon as it was with the rye. Small format barrels so we can give it, you know, the the, the, the dark color, the, mm. the different, you know, caramels and everything coming out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the smaller the format the barrel, the the more surface area of wood to the amount of liquid inside. But that is a labor-intensive process. I mean, so eventually over time, you're going to have to figure out something else because you can't make as much product if you're using the smaller barrels, right? So, question. When you have it in these small, well, in in any barrels, but particularly small barrels, do you have to turn the barrels? Because if the liquid is just sitting in there and there's no motion, then there's more hitting the sides. Yeah, it's it's still interacting with that charred oak. Um, You don't have to turn it. And in small formats, you know, you're going to end up moving it around anyway. You know, we've got five-gallon barrels. I put it on the rack. Oh, shoot. You move it over there. I have to get, that one. Have to get that one over right. here. Yeah, shoot. So um, I'm constantly moving things around. But the natural temperature variations, that natural atmospheric pressures are going to push and pull that spirit. And we're talking about, you know, millimeters yeah. that this mm-hmm. is traveling in and out of the wood. The, the oak stave is maybe was an inch and a half, two inches thick. We're not talking about going all the way through the wood and coming back out. It's just kind of passing itself through and out. So what are our next steps for miscellaneous? What are our hopes? Our dreams? Put them on the table. Today, hopes Mount Airy. Tomorrow's Zavarolt. The world. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we are... Um, really focusing on just trying to introduce our product more in Maryland and mm-hmm. D.C. Um, one of the benefits of being in Maryland was the opportunity to self-distribute, which means we can 
load the trunk of the car up with rum and knock on doors. Well, what about the farmers markets? Because yeah. they're like Central Farm markets. They have uh, they spirits. have spirits. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So we're in a couple of the markets. And Fresh um, Farm markets. They both have them here yeah, in the district. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Maryland. For Maryland producers, we're allowed to be in the Maryland farmers markets. Right. right. Um, so we're, we were in four of those this year. Um, they changed the law, so next year we'll be allowed to go to more of them. Great. And those are a great opportunity because we get to meet people where they're already out and about. They're already folks who care about shopping local. And they're already buying. They're, and they've I got think those wallets out. Yep. What I also think is really interesting about having spirits, beer, wine at farmers markets is that there's almost this like pleasant surprise from people like, Oh my God, do they know that they're pouring alcohol in the market? Like, do you know what I mean? There's Uh this sort of like secret. But there was somebody that actually called the cops on one of the markets because there was alcohol being poured. Are you so kidding this, this me? Happens. So like, this is that's people like are, the guy that calls you. People, people are just silly, silly right? They're so silly. <laughs> the temperance movement. And the cop lives. came and yeah. had three fingers. Yeah. Of yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, so let's tell everybody where they can find you guys. They can come out to the distillery and try all of your spirits. Do you have a membership club or anything like that? We do. So we have a membership program called Reward the Bold, mm-hmm. and it is a annual membership. Um, involves your name proudly on the wall, um, as well as 10% off every time you come in and see us, plus a special release every year. Okay. Um, and so this year, the Reward the Bold members got a bottle of that um, Poppy's Finest Rum that won double gold in San Francisco, mm-hmm. aged um, a second time in a used bourbon barrel. Cool. Um, so some special releases for that group. And is there any collaborations coming up? Are you guys thinking about that yet, or is it a little early? We've got a couple barrels. Like maybe like a Mount Vernon collaboration. <laughs> maybe <you> so. <laughs> um, well, the got... door's locked, by the way, Steve, right. so you're not <laughs> getting out. Um, we've got um, barrels at uh, Brewery Fire, which is the... Speaking of newest, uh, mm-hmm. the newest brewery in Carroll County. Cool. Um, they're using our Poppy's Barrels. And we're also working with Streetcar 82, um, another uh, brewery that's doing a stout in those barrels as well. So I love that. Fun stuff ahead. Yeah, great. And just tell everybody where they can find you, please. Sure. You can find us on Instagram at MISC Distillery or Facebook, if that's your preference. Um, and then our website's also MISC Distillery. We've got a nifty tool on there. You can put your zip code and it'll show you the places nearest you. You can find our products. Excellent. Smart. Great. Thank you both so let's much for coming Let's do Steve's in. info once well, more, too. Well, and Steve, um, just let's give everybody just one more time what they can experience in Mount Vernon. And let's get that last bit of info out about the Whiskey Festival. Well, uh, Mount Vernon Estates open every day of the year. So if you wanted to visit Washington's home and the museums, you can come any day of the year and we're, we're there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gristmill and Distillery are open April through October for tours. And the Whiskey Festival will be November 9th. It's a Saturday with the VIP event at the Distillery and Gristmill and the main event on the estate. So we're really looking forward to it. One other person I wanted to mention that's going to be there, pretty major name in bourbon, is Dave Sherrick. Dave Sherrick built Woodford Reserve, mm-hmm. so he's going to be on that panel with us as well. So we're just, I think that's a big draw for people to okay, see wait, some of these said titans. Pan- is there going to be panel discussions? There'll be a panel discussion at the main estate, which I get to MC, which ought to be interesting because controlling Fun. about seven or eight or nine distillers is going to be <laughs> quite interesting. I think interesting. you can handle it. I I'm hope pretty so. sure. I, I'm sure today's an example for how not to handle it. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so there'll be a panel discussion that's the, totally separate than the from the event. It'll or? be in one of our theaters at the main event, okay, so cool. people can participate. So the event is from when? What time to what time? About uh, uh, six p.m. to nine p.m. on mm-hmm. the estate, and also eleven Virginia craft distilleries will be there pouring. So you get a taste of Virginia, a taste of some history, and hear from some very famous distillers. Excellent. And the website, please. MountVernon.org. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you all for coming in today, even David. 
It was oh, nice to see God. you. Thanks Heaven. for stopping by. And I'm looking forward to another 25 years of bliss with yeah, you. Yeah, no of course. We haven't been together 25 years. We're not married We've been together years. 25. We've been married 23. Yes. Sorry. That's okay. Wait. See no what idea. I go through? <laughs> it's so It's exhausting. Tough. It is exhausting oh. for some people. Anyway, so we want to thank you all for tuning in today. This has been a... Um, spirited conversation all about what's going on. If I had said that, you would have killed me. No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would have. I just would have rolled my eyes. Okay. It's better coming from me. Because <laughs> um, people don't expect it from me. They expect it from you. Uh, so we want to thank you all for joining us in studio today at the Gorgeous Line Hotel. I am Nikki Nellis. This is Industry Night. We're on fullserviceradio.org. You can tune in live every Sunday at 1500 for our show, Foodie and the Beast. You hear us here on fullserviceradio.org for Industry Night. Of course, follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Twitter. And if you want to know about every food and wine event going on in the D.C. metro area, you go to the list, areyouonit.com. It's all there. To my guests, thank you for joining me today. To everybody else, have a delicious week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.